Okay, so open up your Bibles to Genesis 39, verse 2. For those who might be listening to the message, uh, we will not be meeting next Sunday, so we will let you, keep you posted on when the next meeting time will be, but for sure, not next Sunday. We will not be here on the 18th. Okay, let's pray. Let's get in the Word. Father, I do thank you, Lord, for this. I thank you for the time that we have together, and I thank you for those who have come, Lord. Uh, I pray that, you know, you'd meet them here in this place. You know, your word is effective, and I know that it's, uh, that it's only you that can do a work in each of our hearts. So I just pray that you would do that work, Father, that nothing would be a distraction from the work that you want to do. Lord, would you please just uh, move in our hearts mightily, meet us right where we're at in life, and uh, accomplish that work that, uh, that your spirit can do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we covered a whopping two verses and, uh, you know, considered how it was that Joseph became a successful man, if you remember that. You know, in verse 2 we saw that the Lord was with Joseph, first of all, and then we also saw that he embraced servanthood despite finding himself really in horrific circumstances. So he was in a, in a bad situation, but he still served. You know, this week we're going to see how God goes on to mightily use his life in that surrendered state. How God still uses his life. So in verse 3, it says, When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor with his master and became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he had owned under his authority. From the time that he put him in charge of his household and all, of, and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was on all that he owed, owned in his house and in his fields. He left all that he owned under Joseph's authority, and he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Now, talk about some radical turn of events. There Joseph was. He was just faithfully serving in that situation that he found himself in the midst of bondage. But his master, Potiphar, was watching him very closely. You know, this is something that, you know, I, I've tried to instill into my kids. But in whatever it is you do, do it well, whatever it is, because you never know who's watching you. It could be that somebody is watching you, that the Lord is preparing something else for you in life or something that he's going to kind of steer you in other directions. Uh, whether it's, you know, I tell the boys, you know, cutting the grass or if it's washing the cars or whatever it is, Melinda, when she was babysitting, whatever it is, whatever you do, do it well. Because somebody is always watching how you're doing it, okay? So, in Joseph's life, even though he wasn't in the best of circumstances, Potiphar was watching him. And think of how many servants he had. He had tons of servants. I'm sure there were hundreds of servants. But Joseph caught his eye because of his work ethic. It was the way that he was working, and it was the way that the Lord was blessing him as he was working. So, he noticed that everything that Joseph did prospered, you know, whatever responsibility he had. So what does he do when somebody is prospering in something? A good manager realizes that and he says, I'm going to give you more responsibility. You know, if you want to, if you want to get somebody, get something done, there's a saying. If you want to get something done, find somebody who's already busy, okay, because they're going to get it done. And it, it's counterintuitive because a lot of people are like, well, make that lazy person do something. They don't do anything. That's the problem. They don't do anything. Okay, if you find somebody who's busy, they're the ones who will get things done. You'll give them more responsibility because you see that that's how it works. And in Joseph's case, not only was he a hard worker and he obviously had good work ethic. Besides that, the Lord was prospering him. He was blessing him in everything that he did. So if Potiphar gave him another task, that task prospered as well. So by doing so, he starts putting him in charge of all these different things that he owns, his people, his property, his possessions, and he elevates him all the way to second in command. You know, Joseph had proved himself to be good at ruling over those things. And he was so good at it that it says that Potiphar never even concerned himself about anything except for what he was going to eat. You know, I pray for employees like that. <laughs> you know that. You know when you think about you, you when you have people that are working for you or doing something, man, the great you know you're in a good spot when you don't have to worry about any responsibility you give them because they just do it. They show up, they get things done. And I think that that's something that as Christians we have to we should really exemplify. Um I I have certain things that are really pet peeves of mine and one of them is 
laziness among Christians. You know, if, if I have, like, for instance, the guys who do come to the church that work for me, what they know is I can't stand laziness, okay? Uh, it bothers me terribly, especially if somebody claims to be a Christian. If somebody claims to be a Christian and they've made that known to their coworkers and they're lazy, that really sets me off because that's like a black eye against Christianity. As Christians, we should not be thought of as lazy people or people who don't do their work or people who don't you know, perform their best. When we go into the world and we're doing something, whether it's volunteering or whether it's you know, serving in ministry or it's, or it's serving you know, at a job, you should be known at least as a hard worker. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be the best worker, but they should see that you are giving it your best effort all the time. Okay, your best effort. It's so contrary to the whole situation like we were talking about before church, but you know that whole mindset of that's not my job or you need to pay me more to do that type attitude, which is pervading right now. It's pervasive among our society. Everybody thinks that way. It's, it's like, well, you don't pay me to do that. Oh, that's not my job. I hate that. You know? um, and, and again, how are we going to change that? Well, it's going to come from your own example. You know, if you're in the midst of that, um, you know, if, if I'm at work and the toilets need to be scrubbed, I scrub them. I don't go out back and say, hey, somebody needs to clean those toilets. You know, if something needs to be picked up garbage, I pick it up. I do it. Because I believe that we should be setting the example. As a Christian, we should be setting the example of what it means to serve. And you better be willing to do everything that you're asking other people to do. Uh, again, that's not just work. That's in ministry. That's in, in ministry as well. If you're not willing to, to do the little things that nobody else wants to do, then why would you expect anybody else to do it? Why would you expect anybody else to be willing to do those things if you yourself won't hold yourself to that standard? So... I, I really appreciate servant-hearted people, you know, people who take such ownership of their responsibility, whether that's at work or church, that I don't have to worry about those things because I know it's handled. It's, it's such a rare quality nowadays. It's beautiful when you see it. You know, no wonder Joseph was promoted to such a high level out of all the other people in Egypt. He was different. Potiphar looked at that and he says, you know, there's something different about this young guy. He works hard. He does what he's supposed to do. He's servant-hearted. He's humble. All those things that are doing, that's the type of guy I want to be my second in command. And that's the type of people we should be as well. When you think about how Jesus looked at it, you know, I'll, I'll read it, but I'll put it up there for those who can see it. You know, Matthew 25, 21, see it right there, Isaac. You know, it says, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. You know, Jesus was concerned about this. You know, he's talking about eternal things here. And he's saying, be faithful over a few things and I will make you a master over many things. I will put you in charge of many things. We look at the little things as if they're not important. But from God's perspective, faithfulness in the small things is something that he rewards. It doesn't necessarily mean that it, it rewards you with success like the world thinks of success. You know, we talked about that last week. Success in, in Jesus's perspective or God's perspective of success is different than ours. We, we look at success by growth or numbers or riches or what we accomplish, awards, those type of things. That's, that's, a, that's a worldly mindset of what success is, but that's not necessarily what God's standard of success is. His standard of success is faithfulness. You know, are you being faithful in the things that I called you to? You may be called to something like Jeremiah. You know, you might be called to something where he's called you to a lifetime of struggles. But were you faithful in that? Did you do what he called you to do? You know, uh, and sometimes God calls you to greater things, you know. And, and again, it's, it's not for us to judge or to envy other people who are called to different things, which maybe have more worldly success or something that people can look at and say, wow, God is really making that successful. Some things are more obvious than others, okay, when it comes to success. That doesn't mean that God does not see what you're doing as successful, even though it's not getting the attention that other things do. That doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't think what you're doing is successful. You have to really be focused on pleasing him. Notice the, uh, the words at the end of verse 6. It says, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. So in other words, this guy was a stud. <laughs> you know, he was young, 17, 18 years old. The guy was super attractive. 
um, he was the popular kid. You know, when, he, when people looked at him, it was like, oh, this kid's got it all, right? So he was also, not only was he a hard worker, he was servant-hearted, he was, he was being blessed by the Lord. People looked at his outward appearance and they admired that. He just had the look that everybody admired. You know, and that's, you know, we may look at that as, man, I wish I was that kind of guy. I wish I was that, you know, kind of girl. I wish I had those things. But as we're going to see, that's not always a good thing. Sometimes there's some extra temptations that come in life when you are built that way. And, and some things that you have to deal with that maybe ordinary people like myself don't have to deal with all the time because you don't have those same things. You know, in verse 7, we can see where the enemy saw this as an opportunity to attack. In verse 7, it says, After some time, his master's wife looked longly at Joseph and said, Sleep with me. But he refused. Look, he said to his master's wife, With me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in this house. And he has put all that he owns all that he owns under my authority. No one in this house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. So how could I do this immense evil and how could I sin against God? You know, so clearly Potiphar was not the only one who had his eye on Joseph. His wife, Miss Potiphar, did as well. But she did for different reasons. She wasn't admiring how he was a hard worker or any of those things. She was having a whole other issue of lust. You know, and here we see a woman that really clearly was accustomed to getting anything she wanted whenever she wanted it. Uh, at that time, Joseph was the top prize. Everybody's looking at Joseph, and he's becoming super successful in this environment. He's the foreigner that's come in, you know, the exchange student, whatever you think of. You know, and it's like, this kid's just got it all. It's just coming together. And now she wants that for herself. And she doesn't even try to pretend. She's not being subtle about this at all. She just comes out and approaches him and says, sleep with me. That was not like, do you want to? That was a command. Sleep with me. And make no mistake, you know, that's what her intention was. After all, Joseph was still her husband's possession and he was her husband's slave. So she looked at that as, my husband owns you. You have to do whatever I say on top of that. But notice how Joseph responded to that immense temptation. After all, he was still in his late teens. We know that his hormones were raging at that time. Uh, who knows what things he was struggling with. But the way that he answered, he said two things, right? Number one, how could I do that to your husband? How could I do that to your husband? And secondly, how could I do that to my God? Those are the two safeguards that every man or woman must constantly maintain in life when it comes to sexual temptations. You have to have both of those. How could I do this and how it will affect everyone else? And how could I do this to my God? If you maintain those two safeguards in your life, you're going to be protected from these type of things. Because first of all, when we sin sexually, our sins do not just hurt ourselves, although they do. The Bible is very clear about this. In 1 Corinthians chapter, eight, uh, chapter 6, verse 18, it says, flee sexual immorality. Notice that, flee Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. So when you're, when you're living in a sexually immoral lifestyle, you are sinning against yourself, first of all. You're damaging yourself. It's something, you know, I, anybody who has lived any kind of past, you know, if they had a promiscuous lifestyle, they know it has an effect both on them physically, spiritually, emotionally, and it's a lifetime worth of damage. It doesn't just go away. There's forgiveness. Uh, the Lord definitely will restore you, but that stuff stays with you for the rest of your life. You got to deal with it. So when you're living in a sexually immoral way, first person that you hurt is yourself. Okay. You hurt yourself. Secondly, you have a, ter a terrible effect upon others. Okay, and that's where we get to where it says, how could I do that to your husband? Okay, you have an effect on others. You have an effect on your own family. You damage them. You have an effect on the other person's family. You hurt them. You have friends that maybe you betrayed. I mean, I can't tell you how many friends I watched betrayed one another for a girl or something like that. You have careers that are ruined. I've seen people lose their careers. I mean, thriving careers over sexual misconduct. In some cases, you lose your ministry. I've seen so many pastors lose their ministries because of that. And in other cases, you lose your freedom. 
Sometimes you give in to those things and it costs you your freedom. You know, you're imprisoned for things that, that you've done. One act of sexual sin can destroy many people's lives. It's not just yours. It can destroy your life. It can destroy other people's lives. It can destroy, you know, it just goes on. There's so many dangers to it. But more importantly, what does it do with your relationship with God? That's the second thing. He says, how could I do this to your husband? That was the first thing. The second question is, how could I do this to my God? That's the more important thing. It's not that the other isn't important because it's very important. But how must break the Lord's heart when we give into sexual sin? You know, it damages our relationship with God because number one, you know, intimacy was created to be a representation between the Lord and the church. It's, it's a marital union. It's a closeness of a relationship. The enemy perverts anything that God makes good. The enemy wants to pervert it and he wants to, he wants to make it something bad. And that's exactly what he's done. He's taken this thing that God created. And we must always remember God created sex. So it's not that sex is bad. What it is though, is when it's used outside of the way that God has created it, it becomes a perversion of the original creation. So anything outside of how God originally created it is a perversion of the original creation. And that's exactly what the enemy wants to do. He wants to continue to pervert Something that God said, I created this to be a blessing and to multiply the, the humanity and get all, you know, the population to grow, but also to be representative of me and the church. That's the main reason why the enemy attacks it, because he knows what it's supposed to represent. So he personally attacks that constantly through temptations and perversions, which we see growing more and more perverse all the time. Okay, things are happening. So. He tells the enemy tries to peddle this as, first of all, no one's going to see. Nobody else is going to know about this. She's standing there. She's like, sleep with me. You know, we're here alone. Sleep with me. Nobody will know. But Joseph widely, wisely perceived that God always sees what we do, even if no one else does. The Lord always sees. And I thought of this verse this morning. Psalm 51, 4. Against you, you only have I sinned. And done this evil in your sight. Do you know who wrote that? Any guesses? Book of Psalms. David. David there you go. The main writer, right? Do you know when he wrote this? Exactly. And notice what he says. Against you, you only have I sent. And done this evil in your sight. Number one, did he sin against others? Yes, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah, her husband. But he understood the major damage was done to God. I sinned against you when I did this. And he acknowledges, I did this evil in your sight. How did he know that God knew? Because Nathan came and called him on it. The Lord sent Nathan to call him out. The Lord sees it all. Nobody else may see it. Nobody may know what's on the computer or on the phone or whatever else is happening in your life. You may think, well, I got away with it. No, 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 no. The Lord sees it. The Lord sees exactly what is going on. And the thing is, is he loves you enough that he will call you out just like he did for David. Just like he did for countless men and generations and women all these years later that still are doing things that they think are private and then it becomes public, right? And that's, I mean, it's a scary thing to think of the fact that the, love, the Lord loves you so much that he will publicly allow you to be humiliated to get you to repent. He'll do it because he doesn't want you to continue to damage yourself. Remember yourself first, others, and then him. That's what that sin includes. That's the effect of that sin. That's why he takes it so seriously. You would think that that would be enough for Mrs. Potty Mouth. That's what I'll call her from here on out instead of Miss Potiphar, Miss Potty Mouth, to go away. But she was determined to get what she wanted. Verse 10, it says, Although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. Now, one day he went into the house to do his work, and none of the household servants were there. She grabbed him by his garment and said, sleep with me. But leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. I, I just started thinking about this. 
if she were a man and he was a woman, there's no doubt she would have raped him. I, you know, when you think about that. She physically was trying to grab him. The only thing that stopped her from doing it is physically she could not. Okay? It made me think about things because obviously when you hear of somebody who rapes someone else, typically that is a man. I, I know there's extremely rare exceptions, but for the most part, that is something that men do to women. They rape them. Okay? They take that thing and they just they take it. It's violent and it's terrible. A woman typically who is doing something indecent isn't going to physically grab a man and force him to do these things. There you go. That's the difference. She seduces him. And this is where guys have to be aware of these things because I think guys, they don't recognize the danger that they're in because it's not the same danger. Like with my daughter, when she goes somewhere, I worry about where she's going. Because I know the physical dangers that can happen, okay, being a woman in any bad situation. That's why I beg women not to drink and put themselves in those situations. Uh, I, I know that that doesn't always happen, but I have talked to so many women where that has happened that I beg them never to put themselves in those situations. Because unfortunately, there are men that will use that to their advantage and take advantage of a woman in that state. It happens. It's a very real thing. Okay? So I worry about my daughter in those situations, and I'm grateful she doesn't drink, and I don't ever want her to be in those situations. So I think about the physical part of that. For my sons, I worry about seduction because it's a different attack, and it's not something... They're not going to have a woman grab them, like here. There's, they're not going to have a woman grab them and say, you know, and force them to have sex with them. That's not going to happen. They're not going to physically make you do it. But what the enemy will do with the woman is she will use the woman to seduce you. It's a different attack and it's subtle, but it's equally as dangerous. Okay? The enemy attacks based on who he's attacking. Different ways that, and the goal, the goal is the same though, is to destroy you. That's the goal. See, it made me think again in, in Proverbs 7. You know, there's a, there's a whole proverb written about the harlot and how she seduces men. But I think of this one verse that says, With her enticing speech, she causes him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. When she was calling out in the marketplace and she was putting herself in a situation where like, Hey, come here and my husband is away and we can, you know, have joy until the morning and all this stuff. She's saying these things. She's flaunting herself in the midst of it. We live in a generation where women are still doing the same thing, but they're doing it differently. They do it through music. Uh, through I, some of the stuff that I hear on the music nowadays, it's literally the woman calling out the man and trying to seduce, putting thoughts in their head. It's a lot of times, you know, the way that, that women can dress. Uh, it's in videos, it's in movies, it's in all kinds of stuff. You just see this all around, and it's a different kind of seduction. It's the enemy trying to seduce the man to do these things, and she's just doing it way before all the technology we have right now. She's trying to seduce him to get him to give in to these things. Now, notice, though, this time, there's no... There's no reasoning with her. I already read verse 10, right? Where she grabbed him and, and left the coat there. Okay, all right. She grabbed him this time. And she was gonna, like, she's like, you need to sleep with me on there. She's getting real aggressive at this point. Again, physically she can't do it. Joseph is stronger and he can get out of that situation. But instead of trying to reason with her the first time, what did he do? She came at him and he says, how can I do this to your husband? And how can I do this to my God? That didn't work though. Now she's stepping up and she's stepping up the seduction and she's trying to make this thing happen. What does he do the second time? He books it. He runs. He gets himself out of that situation. And that's what, that's sometimes what is necessary. You have to get out of that situation. I've counseled guys, you know, where they've been in a situation where maybe a coworker, a female coworker was trying to seduce them and, and was coming on really strong on these things. And it was a real temptation. I'm like, you're going to have to quit your job. You need to get out of that place. You know, well, well, that's not fair. It may not be fair. 
But if you want to save your family, you need to do this because you could eventually give in to that temptation. Get yourself out of that place. Sometimes you have to flee and sometimes it costs you something to flee. It could be the same for a woman as well. Maybe there is a, a man who's trying to seduce her or whatever it is. She might have to get out of it. And yes, I get it. That's sexual harassment. And then go to HR and do all that stuff. I get it. Sometimes, though, you just need to flee. Sometimes you just need to get out of that situation right then, right away. Don't play with it. There's a time to talk to people and say, you don't talk to me that way. Don't ever do this again. And there's a time to run. There's a time to get yourself out of that environment. And you have to know when that time is. And Joseph is a great example of when to run. This is no longer you just playfully flirting with me. Now you are crossing a line. It's time for me to get out of this situation. But with that being said, don't be surprised when that scorned person tries to destroy your life for rejecting them. How many times have we seen this? How quickly does a person going go from having to have you to absolutely wanting to destroy your life? It can happen like this. I have a stupid story. But it doesn't do it any justice, but I'm going to share it anyways. I was a teenage boy, and we would go to the movies. Back then, you can go to a movie in Southside, too, so I was like two bucks. And I went into this movie theater, and I was with my friends, and I was starting to, I was going from the nerdy kid, which I, I was always kind of a nerdy kid, to suddenly I was changing, and I was starting to become kind of like, you know, popular in a sense, okay? Of my friends, like the girls started liking me and paying more attention to me. So we went to these, this movie, and I remember sitting there, and there was a group of girls, and we're just trying to watch this movie. And these girls, this one girl in particular, is trying to get my attention. And she's like, hey, what's your name? Hey, you know, whatever it is, doing the teenage, early teenage years, imagine how goofy it was, right? How cheesy it was. So I'm sitting there, and she's trying to get my attention and trying to do these things. And I was like, you know, be quiet. I just want to watch a movie, you know? <laughs> and, and next thing you know, I get a bucket of popcorn just dumped on my head. I'm sitting there with my friends, and just this popcorn dumped on my head. And she is just laughing and talking trash and all this stuff, you know, and I don't know why I thought of that example, but it just reminded me of how quickly somebody can go from being infatuated to you to where if you scorn them, they want to destroy you. And it happens. It may not be a bucket of popcorn on your head. Hopefully that's all it is. Okay. But it may be something worse. It could be, you know, it could be trying to destroy your reputation online. It could be coming up with false a uh, accusations against you. I, I, as a youth pastor, I would have, you know, teenage girls that would come in and I learned very, very, very quickly right away that when they started talking about certain things, the direction the conversation was going, I would have to stop them and I would have to give them a warning because I had this happen three or four times while I was a youth pastor where they would start saying, I have to tell you what happened to me and my dad, and it just started going that direction. And I just, I would stop them and I'd say, listen, if whatever you're about to say is true, you have to say it. But if it is not true, if you are just angry with your father or trying to get back at him or something, I'm begging you to stop because the minute you say this, the cap's off. You're opening a can of worms and there's no putting it back. Okay. I got burned on that a couple of times where, where a young girl made an accusation because the dad wouldn't let her see this particular guy. And there was another thing where she was grounded and, and two different girls did it. I had one girl in particular that was upset with her brother, her older brother, uh, because he did something that just made her mad. And she, she came in and she claimed that he raped her and I had to call the police and, and, you know, right away I, I had to call them and they came in and they arrested him. Uh, he claimed to be innocent, and he killed himself shortly after that. Um, I saw a dad almost commit suicide. Same thing. He lost his job. He got kicked out of the Fort Huachuca because you had to have clearance for this military clearance. I watched his whole life destroyed, and it turned out to be a false accusation. I saw so many different things that happened in those situations that whenever that situation started coming up, I, I wanted them to tell me the truth, but I wanted them to understand the words you were about to say have huge consequences, huge, and you can't stop it. Once you say it, it's there. 
this week, um, you know, I, I had a friend. Actually, let, let's read these next verses and then I'll, I'll tie this in. In verse 13, it says, When she saw that he had left his garment with her and had run outside, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, my husband brought, uh, brought a, he- a Hebrew man to make fools of us. He came to me so that he could sleep with me and I screamed as loud as I could. When he heard me screaming for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. She put Joseph's garment beside her until this, his master came home. Excuse me. Then she, took, then she told them the same story. The Hebrew slave you brought to us came to make a fool of me. But when I screamed for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. When his master heard the story his wife had told him, these are the things your slave did to me, he was furious. And he had him thrown into prison where the king's prisoners were confined. So Joseph was there in prison. Can you imagine how terrible that would have felt? I mean, here you were, you were sold by your brothers, carted off by the Ishmaelites into Egypt, sold again to Potiphar. You finally, your life is starting to get, you know, come together. All of a sudden, you know, you're being made a ruler and God is blessing everything you're doing and all these great things are happening. Then this crazy woman starts becoming attracted to you due to nothing that you've done wrong yourself. You tried to handle it right. You tried to do the right thing. You even fled from the situation. Now she comes up with this false accusation against you that you cannot defend against yourself. You're thrown back into prison. Your whole life is turned upside down once again. Man, it would be so hard to be in a situation where you know you did the right thing, but somebody was lying about you. And they were succeeding in destroying your life. That has to be a helpless, helpless situation. This week, uh, I thought of this because I have a friend in Arizona who I believe is going through this right now. It was something that I saw on Facebook where they were at a 4th of July event and some kids were in front of them and they were cussing, I guess, super profane. And just, you know, dropping the F-bomb and just cussing out people walking by and all this just being really, really, really disrespectful. A couple of kids, uh, turns out they were 10 and 12. Uh, so this person that I knew, he, he walks over to them and he had a uh, open carry gun. So he had a gun on his side, okay? And not even thinking about it, walks over to the kids and says, you know, where are your parents? And the kids start cussing him out and then start cussing out saying really vulgar things about his daughter, which was sitting right behind him. So he tells him, you know, you need to get out of here. You know, you need to go. The kids, the parents, I guess, at that point, start coming over to them and seeing what's going on. And then the kid says, he pulled out his gun on us. He threatened to shoot us. So all of a sudden, people are freaking out. It's in a park environment. He's got a gun, you know, all this stuff, right? The kids are sitting there saying this stuff. Their parents are freaking out. That guy wants to fight, you know, this other guy. Cops show up, eight of them. They handcuff them. Nobody asks his side of the story what's going on, everything. It goes on Facebook on the community page in Sierra Vista where everything, every arrest is. They've got pictures of him being arrested. They've got his mug shot. You've got hundreds of comments of, Good, he deserves that. What scum, what low life would threaten innocent little kids and all this stuff. I mean, he's just being bashed. I'm reading through it and I'm like, I can't believe he did that. Because, you know, I mean, we don't know the whole story. We don't know. We don't know the part about them cussing or any of that stuff. We didn't know anything. It just sounded like he pulled a gun on someone. Um, and we're just watching and everybody's bashing him. And then finally, and I don't know if this was a good thing or not, but his wife goes and puts her side of the story in the comments of what really happened. Because nobody is asking them what really happened. And I don't know how that's going to work out for them in the end. That could hurt them, actually. You know, I mean, and and all these things, the way the laws are and everything else. But I just thought of, man, can you imagine how devastating that would be that he's a social worker, he works with kids that are disabled. I mean, it just, everything is just from, from something that someone said. You know, the book of James warns us, be careful what you say, because it can, you know, it can ignite a forest fire. A wildfire can just erupt from just the little spark that you say. You have no idea the power of your words until you watch your words destroy someone else. I think of another one, a celebrity pastor that I won't mention, but somebody that I used to listen to a lot, um, that he was a great teacher. Actually, he started from, went from Canada, moved into Chicago, 
built this church and and had this massive, massive church. I mean, his podcast was one of the most famous podcasts across America, 20 or 20,000 people, several churches came out of it. I mean, all kind, just a huge success story, right? And then all of a sudden, these allegations started coming out against him about anger issues and uh, mistreatment of people within his church and then financial mishandlings and all this stuff that was happening. Uh, and they literally fired him, you know, from that church. And I think about that. It's like, you know, I planted this church. I poured into this for 12 years. I can't imagine... You know, you you come and you start something and then have somebody fire you and they take it all away because it's not yours. It was never my church. It was never anything else. But just the thought of that, that, you know, these people that you poured into that they could just fire you, you know, and all of it's gone. They took all the rights to his teachings, everything. Right. And he was clearly upset about this. And this had been going on for a couple of years. And then suddenly, because I had subscribed to his podcast, I got a email sent to me and it was him defending himself um, and and lashing out against his elders and the people who were cowards that wouldn't stand up for truth and it was just such a terrible email and I thought man you just did more damage than good with that you know it would have been better off for you just to quietly go away and then start something new and see what God will do through your life if it's really not true um, rather than you trying to defend yourself and attacking others because it just really adds it really made it seem like everything they said about you is true based on what you just, how you handled this, you know? Um, We have to be really careful when we're in situations where you're accused of something that you didn't do because you can make the situation worse. And then I look at Joseph and I think, how did he keep his mouth shut? How did he keep his mouth shut? There's no record of him saying, that's not true. That's not how it went down. You know, we don't have anything in Scripture where he says, and then he told Potiphar, your wife was trying to seduce me. There were many times that she tried this. I tried to stop her. I told her, how can I sin against you? And how can I sin against God? Then I went and I told somebody else, hey, I don't ever want to be alone with this girl. Please be with me. There was none of this stuff. There was, there was nothing. He didn't defend himself at all. It's just absolutely silent. That is one of the hardest things to ever go through in life. Uh, I had a taste of it in ministry when I first went into ministry. I've shared this story, so I'm not going to share the whole story. But bottom line is, a girl came and stoned to the youth group. And I smoked weed when I was a kid. I knew exactly what it smelled like. I didn't have to work, you know, move to Oregon to figure that out. You know, I, I knew exactly what it was. So when she came in the youth group, I called her out on it. And and. I didn't have the tact at that point <laughs> that I should have had. Uh, and it made her mad. And when we came out of the youth room, or actually it was a sanctuary, we were all doing worship. When we came out, there was a mob of moms waiting for me. She went and turned all of them against me. And how could you dare accuse this poor girl of doing such a thing? And she never comes to church. And then you do that. And it's not true. She says she hasn't. I'm like, and I literally was cornered. You know, one of my first experiences of being a pastor. And I learned real quick that sheep bite. And I was like, wow. And it was just a horrible situation. It, we, when I took this youth ministry, there was, I, there was less than 20 kids that were coming when we first started. It just about destroyed the youth ministry. Took it completely out. The next week, there was like two kids. It just spread like wildfire. All these parents were mad at me. Everybody was, I mean, it was like, it was bad. And I remember, because I'd only been in ministry at that point, maybe just a couple of months. And I remember going to my pastor. I'm like, what do I do? You know, I, I remember, I think I even asked him, will you not even tell people the truth? You know, I mean, you're on the pulpit to say something. And he says, Clint, he goes, you're going to have to learn a really, really hard lesson right now. And this is the lesson you have to learn. If you defend yourself, the Lord will let you. He goes, if you just stay quiet, the Lord will defend you. And I was like, oh. and week after week after week, I just thought it was just horrible. It was gut wrenching every week walking by people and knowing they were looking at you different and all this stuff and you couldn't defend yourself. And then one week, uh, a few weeks later, Sandy, who, you, you know, if you were on the Zoom things, you saw her. She was, uh, she was at that point, not one of my leaders. I, I hadn't had leaders yet, but her and her uh, boyfriend, Ricky, and there was about three other kids showed up right after school and they're knocking on my office door and I'm like, oh, here we go more bad news, you know, and uh, they came in and they said, hey, so-and-so is spreading this about you. 
And we want to know, is that true? Did you really do that? Did you say that? I was like, no, that's not what was said. That's not how it went down. And they were like, we knew it. You know, we, we know who what kind of person she is, and we can see that you wouldn't have done that. And for the first time in ministry, I learned the relief of having somebody else step up and, and stand for your character and defend you. And it was a valuable, valuable lesson. It was a very painful lesson. It was painful when I was going through that. But I learned the value of just let the Lord defend you. And then the ministry started growing from that because then the kids started defending me. It was, it was them. They started recognizing what this girl was doing and they knew it was a lie. Um, but it's a hard thing when you're in a situation where somebody's attacking you, assaulting your reputation, and you can't defend yourself. Joseph is the epitome of that. You know, besides Jesus, it's Joseph. You know, I mean, if anybody <laughs> really went through it, it was Jesus. But man, what an example through Joseph. You know, thinking of Jesus too, when you think about him, you know, Isaiah 53, 7. It says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. And we know that that's speaking of the time when he was going to be crucified and when he was standing before those who were trying to crucify him. And yet he didn't argue. He didn't, you know, he said very, very little to defend himself. That's a hard thing to do to trust God, even when they're wronging you. You know, I, I'm certain, though, that only the Lord could ever enable me to respond in such a way because my natural inclination is, natural inclination maybe, is when I get attacked, I want to defend myself. I want people to know the truth. It rarely works out good for you when you do that. It rarely works out good for you. You usually make the situation worse. And then people start doubting you. Where you just have to maybe say what might be better in a situation like that is, you know who I am. You know the type of person. I've lived before you. You've, you've seen me operate. Do you think I would have done that? And maybe let them come to their own conclusion You know of, of what it is. That's, that's why it's so important that you maintain a good character before that time. It's so important that they see that we're men and women of integrity so that when that time comes where you do have somebody bringing a false accusation because you will have that happen. It's going to happen. Somebody's going to say you said something that you didn't say or you did something that you didn't do. But is your reputation so solid that people look at that and go, there's no way that he would have done that. There's no way she would have done that. That's not the type of person that they are. You got to live that life before that time, though. Otherwise, it does no good. So look what the Lord did after all that. After he allowed Joseph to go through some more hardship, he still didn't abandon him to despair. I'm sorry, there's one more verse there. and I just, I'll read it real quick. 2 Timothy 3.12 Yes, and all who desire to live, under God, uh, to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So don't think it's strange. You know, if you go through something where you're trying to live a godly life and you're trying to walk at your life as a Christian and do the right thing, don't think it's, it's bizarre. Like, why is this happening to me? I'm, I'm doing the right things. Don't, don't be surprised. It's not surprising when the enemy attacks you in different ways because you are doing the right things. Now you are worthy of being attacked where before you weren't. He didn't have to worry about you at all. Now you're doing the right thing. He's going to attack. Verse 21, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor with the prison warden. The warden put all the prisoners who were, who were in the prison under Joseph's authority, and he was responsible for everything that was done there. The warden did not bother with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him, and the Lord made everything that he did successful. You know, once again, we see God override the plans of Joseph's enemies. You know, here it is. The enemy is doing something again to disrupt what God is doing. And the Lord allows it, but overrides the circumstance. And we have to remember, that's the God that we serve. God will allow things to be done to us, but he will override the actions for our good. So he may allow something difficult to happen. You may go through something terrible, but he will override how it turns out in your life or what it accomplishes in your life or what it accomplishes for his kingdom. So he can take the very worst thing that the enemy can, can come up with 
and he can still use it for good. What were some of the similarities in this situation? Because when, remember before, there was things that were said about Joseph, and now there's things again. Number one in verse 21, it says, the Lord was with Joseph. First thing, the Lord was with Joseph. Secondly, the Lord extended kindness to him. Third, the Lord granted him favor with the prison warden. Fourth, the warden then placed Joseph back into a position of authority. And then lastly, Joseph was successful once again. Even though he, he was falsely accused, even though he ended up in, in a much different environment where he was recently really just all these benefits and blessings of the position that he held, now he's in a prison serving and he just faithfully serves. And guess what? God says, I'm going to make the warden show you favor. You know, just amazing to think of that, that God can even take a situation like that and say, I'm going to touch that man's heart to bless you in this really hard circumstance. I'm going to shower my blessings through that individual. And that guy had no idea that God was doing it. He had no idea. God, it's almost like he was just a hose and the Lord was channeling the water right through him. And he had no idea how God was blessing Joseph. What we talked about last week is certainly relevant here as well. You know, last week I talked about bloom where you're planted. And once again, we see that Joseph is blooming where he's planted. You know, he keeps on getting uprooted and put in worse situations every time. But he's faithful to bloom where he's planted. But like we see here, we have a responsibility to be as successful as we can in whatever situation we find ourselves. We can't control the circumstances in our lives, but we can do our best with whatever opportunities we have. You may not like the circumstance you're in. God has allowed it, but you have a responsibility to do your best regardless of that. So if last week, you know, the admonition was bloom where you're planted, then I think this time it's something different. I think it's bloom again. Bloom again. And that's something that's really hard to do because once you've bloomed where you planted, when you already went through that one time where you felt like God took you from a place and put you somewhere else in life that you didn't want to be, and you did bloom where you're planted, and there was some good memories, and there were some great things that God did through you, and you're like, oh, so good, and then boop, plucked out again, Planted somewhere else in life, a new circumstance in life. Maybe not a different place. Maybe it's a different circumstance. Now he's saying bloom again. That's hard. It's hard when you, when, when you can only look back to remember when God did this, 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 and this, and now we're starting over. Now we're doing all it's hard to bloom again. When all you have are past memories of when you did bloom in the past, when things came together. You know, don't assume that just because you went from one situation that was better to a situation now that's not so good, don't assume that the Lord is done with you. Don't assume that that's all that God has. Just because that situation is not working out the, the, the best way that you had hoped or the way that you had envisioned, don't assume that your best years are behind you. And there's still nothing that God wants to do in your life from that point on. You know, when, when we start looking at life and there's full of disappointments or hardships and all you can see is, man, you know, it used to be so good. Look at what God did five years ago. Look what God did when he did that stuff. There's a real temptation to think God must be through with me. He must not be using me anymore. He must not be blessing what I'm trying to do anymore. There's that temptation and that's what the enemy wants to do. That's where you have to make a decision that you are going to bloom again. You're going to do it again. And whatever circumstance he has you in and whatever else it's going to be, you don't know what the future holds, but you're going to do your best in whatever the new normal is. We hear that all the time, right? This is the new normal. There's a new normal every week now, okay? But in life, you really have to adopt that mentality of this is reality. This is where I really am. This is really what's happening. I'm going to make the best of this circumstance. I'm not going to be looking forward to what if this happens or maybe things will get better. And I'm not going to be looking back to things were so much better back then. And man, God was really using me or blessing me or things were so much better in the past. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to look at where I'm at right now. I went from being favored in my dad's house to being sold by my brothers 
to being sold again in Egypt. And at that point, God started doing great things in my life, despite those things. And things were really on the up and up. And now I am sitting in a prison cell. I'm not going to sit here and die. I don't like the circumstance. I'm not going to mope. I'm not going to let this destroy me. I'm just going to do the best I can do with the situation that I am in right now, a situation I cannot control. I'm going to bloom again. I'm going to let God do whatever he's going to do, and I'm going to do the best that I can do in that circumstance. Joseph shows fortitude as a Christian. He shows us what it means to not give up. It may not be the plan or the dream that you had, but it shows us you still have a requirement to do your very best, even in the circumstance you find yourself today. Just do your best. And let the Lord raise you up. Let the Lord cause the, the petals to grow again. Your responsibility, just do your best. That's all you can do. And just be faithful. Just be faithful with what opportunities you do have. Okay? All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this example. I think that, you know, we look at Joseph's life and we can see how you really, 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 um, over and over again, Lord, it's like this roller coaster. He just went, had extreme highs and he had extreme lows, but he was consistent through it all. Every time he was consistent and he just continued to serve you despite um, the obstacles that he faced. Lord, I just pray now that you would just remind us of these things as we face challenges and difficulties and there's the temptation to either you know quit and give up or, or maybe you look back in the past and you go, man, things were so much better back then. Help us just to be willing to bloom again in whatever circumstance we find ourselves now. Help us just to be used by you to be surrendered to you so completely, Lord, that you would just use us in whatever circumstance you have placed us in, Lord, and that you would use us to whatever extent you want to use us. I just pray that you do that for all of our lives, Lord. And we just pray that you bless this time, Lord. Help us to, you know, again, to have a good, relaxing afternoon, Lord. And uh, just bring these things to remembrance as we need them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.